This is Paula Schmidt, and welcome to my theater of the mind, Evening's Kingdom. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a review on your preferred podcast platform and share the show with a friend. Your support really helps, and it means so much to me. This is an epic quest through an ancient, magical kingdom as Uma, a reluctant young shaman, seeks her revenge against the king who killed her family. But, guided by otherworldly allies and unlikely friends, Uma unlocks a whole new world. Evening's Kingdom, written and read by Paula Schmidt. This is Paula Schmidt, and thank you so much for listening. I am back in Narnia, a.k.a. Psychedelicious Lex's Closet. We continue. Chapter 72, Nor. Nor couldn't taste his food, but he could smell their desperation. The Lampisa's family reeled with shame under the news of Bestel's death. Their younger boy, Derwin, still had a chance at ascendancy, for, as Weir Rothwell testified, Bestel had acted alone. But it was decided that Nor and Derwin, the last royal children alive, would begin their military training early at the separate outposts of their maternal origin. And so Nor processioned to his mother's homeland of Palmstone, and there lived in royal barracks where every surface was glazed with oil as if perpetually starlit. And there, artists and the great beauties of the kingdom mingled each night with the cadets. And Derwin Lampesis was dispatched to the military outpost outside his mother's homeland of Tinter. The cadets there frightened him. Derwin did poorly at his military exercises and withdrew into his brittle, privileged shell, dreaming only of his return to the palace. But neither prince was safe at the palace any longer. Chapter 73 The Chiriclo The caravan rumbled on, and the air grew lush and damp. The prairies of dry, golden grasses gave way to rolling foothills carpeted with blue and scarlet flowers. Clouds of pollen rose from the children's robes as they journeyed towards the deep green distance. A vast mountain scarved in mists. Uma could smell fang growing on its cliffs. An ancient temple clung to the foot of the mountain, marking the start of their climb. Huge statues of Godic stood sentinel within it, each so lifelike, they seemed to move the moment you turned away. They made offerings of milk and honey to each, and it was decided that Uma, Oriaku, and Tulu would make the ascent alone ferrying up exotic furs and spices to trade with the monks who lived at the top of the mountain, while the others stayed below, rebuilding the damaged wagons and enjoying the wealth of fresh water and green life. Fern felt a strong call at the temple. She decided to undertake her spirit quest there, fasting alone in the woods to elicit the sympathy of a spirit guide, one who might give her wisdom from the worlds beyond worlds and bring her luck and protection. Her parents were still grieving Ogo, but this was an honorable place for a quest. And for the first time in all that season, Uma saw them smile at Fern. And that was how they left them, Fern beaming as Lelora sang over her, using a feather fan to smudge the girl from head to toe with scented smoke, asking all powers that be to bring her daughter wisdom and watch over Fern on her journey. As Uma, Ariaku, and Tulu began this steep climb up into the mountain, Ariaku turned and shouted back down to Fern. May they bring you wisdom, but not too much, knock on wood. Fern's voice drifted up to them happily. Never! Though it was warm at the base of the mountain, Tulu insisted they each bring a carry sack of warm garments to protect themselves against the nights at altitude, which he knew would be cold and damp. This included a heavy, wax-felted outer mantle for their cloaks, and two layers of cloth to wear loosely beneath it, 
trapping warm air against their bodies, but still allowing any damp to have room to dry quickly. As they ascended, they passed trees with their trunks wrapped in sacred sky-blue cloths, the same fabric the monks wore. The cloud abbey is up here to pray for the whole world, you know, Tulu said. That's why they built the abbey up so high. The gods put them there, so the people say. I thought they were relocated from the jungle by the Yang, Arayaku said, panting slightly to keep up with Tulu's long-legged stride. I don't believe anything Tulu says, Uma said. But you can go on talking as long as you want. You're scaring away the snakes. Don't trust me, Tulu said. She laughed. No. Too bad. That might be why you're so cold right now. Here. Tenderly, Tulu tucked Uma's mantle in closer around her face. Better? Uma looked down. Thank you. It was near dusk when the low, rhythmic chanting of monks dawned towards them, and the travelers slowed, marveling at each other. Uma saw Arayaku was crying, and realized she was too. It's so beautiful, Arayaku said, clasping her tightly. I love you. I don't tell you that enough, but I love you so much. Uma's cheek was wet to his. I love you too, my friend. Warm pools of candlelight illuminated the trees, sending shadow and light dancing into the mist. The candles stood inside small, pebble-lined altars, and monks in sky-blue robes trailed between them, gently fanning insects away from the flames. One of the monks came towards the travelers, smiling. His hand-carved wooden clogs made a pleasant rhythm over the roots and stones, and he was tall and thin like the other monks behind him, with dark golden skin and facial hair plucked smooth but for his thick, unruly eyebrows and woolly black beard. Looking at him, Uma realized with a shock that Tulu must have more than a drop of monk's blood. The man bowed as warmly as if he'd been expecting them. Welcome, friends, to the clouds, he said. The monks of Cloud Abbey slept in treehouses, looking out over the desert. From the mountaintop they could see the smoke above Great Tintern and the five corners in the distance. In the other direction was a pale fire of light along the horizon, which Toulouse swore shone all the way from the capital city of Chalice. The spaces between the trees were gilded with firelight and incense. The treehouses presiding over a wide, cleanly swept way space between them. In each tree, a small central platform was filled with monks playing music, laughing and drinking tea, all of them dressed in palest blue as though they were clad in the heart of the sky itself. They smiled and nodded at the Chiriclo travelers as the monk's gatekeeper led them into the abbey. You'd prefer to stay together, I assume, he said to them, leading them to a tree so enormous that its branches arrayed down onto the ground, snaking out all around it like great mossy rails into the forest. Uma gaped up at the massive tree. I never knew trees could grow so large. Perhaps it is happy here, the gatekeeper said, gathering up candles and coals for their tea fire. The man wouldn't accept payment, but Tulu coaxed him to sit with them long enough to drink tea as darkness drew its cloak in around them. The monk's name was Skibberus. After so many days of climbing with wet feet, and all while carrying a heavy pack, Uma was exhausted. But that night, my dear listener, for the first time, she saw me. Chapter 74 The Guest Perhaps we bait the hook, but in the end, all fish catch themselves. My enemy used me to draw her to him, Still this haunts me. I will describe myself for you as Laxus made me for Uma that night. I gleamed with an otherworldly, pale light. And my hair, white as sea foam, was so long it reached past my waist. I moved with a poised air, and my long, hooked nose seemed regal to Uma as I drifted between the trees. 
clearly not belonging to her world. My large, liquid black eyes, Uma saw them most of all. Lying between Arayaku and Tulu, Uma opened her eyes and saw me down below. She sat up in the treehouse, instantly bewitched, her heart pounding like a struck bell. She covered her chest with both her hands, as if she could stop herself from ringing. Oh, my listener, she never did. I turned and smiled up at Uma. I was all but naked, except for what looked to her to be a long, liquid black sarong, but you will understand that later. Come here to me, this image of me said to her. Who are you, ghost? Uma said. What do you want? Reader, she was furious. Vampires need to feel in control. There were few times in Uma's life when she was not in control. One day, she would tell me she'd always wanted to be in control more than she'd wanted to be in love. Because love is unbiddable. But already all Uma could think was how much she wanted to see me, an otherworldly stranger, smile again. And this made her furious. Come to me and see, I said. Why? When I do not know who you are or what you want, she said. Come because you are afraid, I said. Because there is nothing so delicious as a little disquiet. You're an assassin, Uma said, not believing it. I scoffed, glittering up at her. I'm a messenger. Perhaps I'll come up to you instead. No, stay where you are and tell me your message, Uma said. She knew, if she went down, how I would fold her into my arms. Knew how my white hair would be satin cool, and my body would be warm and soft against hers. She felt dizzy, as if she'd been hit on the head, and yet it was pleasurable. She did not move. I blinked at Uma slowly. Tell the monks to take you to the smoke. He would speak with you. Uma rested her chin on her hands. The smoke would speak with me? Yes, I said. I thank you for the message, Uma said. Only a pleasure, my lady. And the god Laxus's projection of me drifted away back into the trees, a puppet dissolving back into the ether. Uma rushed to lean over the edge of the platform. Wait! But the pale girl was gone. Chapter 75 Uma As always, Orayaku was the first to wake. Wake up and talk to me, he said, tugging at Uma's blanket. It's freezing. I don't want to get out of bed. Uma uncovered her mouth sleepily. And then how will you pee? That is a problem for the authorities of me, Orayaku said. Rise up and entertain me. She laughed. Shut your face. Orayaku rolled his eyes. This is unhelpful. I thought you were my friend. My authorities tell me if you get up first and make water over the side, Uma said, a kind... Helpful monk might notice that we are awake and bring me tea. <laughs> tea? So warm. Ah! Arayaku untangled himself and snailed to the edge of the platform, still wrapped up in his blanket, and made water over the side. Ugh, next time I'll wake Tulu up first. Tulu groaned, flopping over to face the trees. You did. Oh, good morning, stranger, Arayaku said. Tulu muttered. What's that? Arayaku said. Tulu pulled his blanket up over his face. Not yet, it isn't. So asleep. Uma could see her breath in the cold air. She slipped a fur beneath her robe and fastened it there with her sash so that the furry edges spilled out across her shoulders. She padded, barefoot, down the cool ladder. Her feet were still warm from sleep, and the cool of morning felt delicious to her warm, bare skin. A narrow path of pale, smooth stones led from the foot of the tree into the woods, showing her where to relieve herself. As she made water, Uma watched caterpillars pinch up the wet, bright leaves, trembling in the undergrowth around her. When the wind blew, shadows danced across the ground, as glossy as paint. The abbey was coming alive all around them, 
Monks rose to their devotions as smoke from the first cook fires lifted, lavender gray, up into the milky light of day. Uma came out of the woods. Breakfast tea, Skibberus said. Chapter 76 They feasted in the open air, watching daylight warm the desert far below. From their great vantage point, the desert seemed only a flat, creamy pool below, the dunes and formations adrift within it like floating leaves. The monks made cakes of toasted nut flowers, eggs, spices, milk, pollen, honey, and water. They ate the cakes still hot from the fire, burning their fingers and dipping the cakes into little dishes of oil, pollen paste, and the creamiest, most wonderful cheese any of the travelers had ever tasted. Their tea was sweet and bright and thick, made as it was from dried mushrooms, bark, and sweet, sticky pollen resin. As they drank, they began to trade. Spotted furs were exchanged for tea, pollen, and incense. And as the rich, heady scent of fang growing beneath them on the cliff faces warmed with the day, the monks began to speak of the sacred oil made from the rare plant. Tulu had warmed Uma and Arayaku not to bring it up first. The first to speak always loses, Tulu said. Always let the other person bring it up. The item, the price. Say nothing in response to the first price they mention. Wait for them to mention a second price. Only then do we cast our anchor. Something of middling value. Not so low to be insulting, but low enough that the target price is between that and their offer, he said. Ooh, can I try? Orayaku said. Uma and Tulu answered as one. No. Chapter 77 Skibberus took Uma to see a monk whose house was beaded with beautifully carved horn containers for the precious fang oil. Each was wax-lined, fitted with stoppers, and covered with carvings of beasts and dryads. They look like scenes from a story, Uma said. Indeed they are, said the monk, whose name was Graham. Shall I tell this one to you? Once, he said. There was a little fish who loved leaping up out of the water to fly through the air. The other fish could not understand him. Why should anyone bother to do such a thing? He had to hold his breath to jump that way. What an inconvenience. But each day, he learned to push himself farther. His great leaps made him strong. And not only could he leap farther than anyone else, he could dive deeper too. He brought them all up moss from the bottom of the sea farther than any fish had ever been before. What makes someone happy is never a waste of time, the little fish said, and the others began to understand. All his children had tiny wings, and they became the first birds. Graham held the cup out to Uma. Special price for a pretty lady. Uma smiled at him but did not take the cup. You should meet my friend Tulu she said. Oh, but this one. Graham reached up and pulled down a different cup gently with both his hands. May I? He poured them tea, serving Uma's to her in the new cup so she could admire it while he spoke. This one I feel may be meant for you. The story goes like this. Once upon a time, a great fire came to live underneath the earth in a lake of oil. It burned for a thousand years and became a civilization of great learning for fires. Little flames studied there, and learned how to forge the earth into great amphitheaters where flames could become strong. They learned to draw down lightning into their home, and the world of fires grew stronger still. This went on until fully half that world was burning from below. Meanwhile, the other half was terrified. The other half lived topside, you see. And even though the great cities of fire lived far below, the ground above them was so hot it scorched every green thing to ashes. There were many places the green world could not go, for any creature that dared pass above the world of fire vanished into steam. Finally, the green world sent an emissary up into the heavens, and lightning brought their message down to the world of flames. Why should we care if the topsiders are frightened, said the fires. It means nothing to us whether they live or die. 
The lightning listened to them carefully. We live on gas from ancient green worlds. Many green worlds had to live and die that we might have life now, said the lightning, for all this had been much discussed in the heavens. Then they can die again, said the fires. But the world began to heave and split, for the fires had eaten away too much of its heart. It split into a thousand pieces. Some of the topsiders survived, and they protected the lightning who had bravely carried down their message into the fires for them. They kept the lightning alive in a clay pot and fed him dead branches. In return, his flames gave them warmth and cooked their food. To survive, we must compromise. Ancient scrolls must be kept safe. A catling who comes from the forest must sheathe his claws if he wishes to live in the village. A mighty seductress who would be queen must make herself a shield. A shield is never safe, but she is shelter for those she loves. Suddenly, Graham paused, his round face clouded with pain. I beg your pardon, Uma. I must excuse myself. He withdrew into the shade of his tree, turning away. A small pain. It will pass. Uma asked Graham if he would grant her permission to journey inside him, to see if she could learn how he might dissolve his pain or if it were possible for her to cut it loose for him energetically. They lay down on the boards of his house, head to foot, and let their minds drift together. As she lay beside Graham, Uma felt an awareness of a cave, dancing with light. She knew the cave was him. She could see his stories trickling down the walls of his soul like water. And there, pulsing in the far corner, she saw it. A big, veiny black knot, a fanged spider hissing at her. You cannot make your home here, Uma said to it. With her mind, she caught the spider up inside her spirit bag and traveled out beyond the sky to dispose of it in the fortified room she kept there. For it was not correct to leave the energy of illness where another could step into it. But up there, beyond the sky, in the great blackness between the stars, was the same entity she'd noticed before, it was closer to her this time, close enough for Uma to see how his body moved like smoke, and that he was studying her, too. Uma returned to her body and was quiet, listening to the mystery's instructions on how to prevent the spider from clotting again in Graham. He was to take longer walks more often, and take a special tea twice a day, made of sweet bark, turmeric, and black pepper taken with fat nut. He was to let the herbs steep as long as possible. And already Graham could breathe easier. Uma showed him how to make the tea and gave him turmeric root, and he gave her the horn carved with fires and filled it with fang oil. Afterward, dangling their feet over the edge of the treehouse, Uma asked Graham and Skibberus about the white-haired messenger who'd come to her in the middle of the night, telling her to seek the smoke. Did they know about such a thing? Skibberus and Graham looked at each other, the gatekeeper's eyebrows dancing up in woolly surprise. Then... Skibberus bowed to Uma deeply. The Yang allow us to live here, praying over the world, but the smoke prays over us. If he has asked you to come and see him, it is our honor to take you to him, Skibberus cocked his head, smiling. This has never happened before. Oh, Uma said. We will make our journey in the morning. It is better not to travel in the cloud forest at night. Chapter 78 Prince Derwin Lumpesis Derwin hated lizards. As far as he could tell, he was the only Yang who did. Every waking moment on Tintern's royal outpost was filled with lizard worship. Racing lizards, feeding them, fighting them, breeding them, riding them. It was as if no one else saw the psychotic, hungry gleam in the lizard's flat, shining eyes as if they did not understand that however much a soldier loved his lizard, the thing would kill and devour him, given half a chance. Derwin had seen it countless times. One of the villager handlers getting too close, getting careless. Then there would be screams and blood, the cadets laughing as if such a thing could never happen to them, simply because they were astride. The villagers were even worse, slavishly fawning over the cadets always with that stupid, mute admiration in their eyes. Derwin supposed 
They hoped it would save them. Even a villager must want security. Oh, but it was impossible to imagine a villager's thoughts, their desires. Derwin thought, most likely, the Gotics gave them less of an interior life. It would be a kindness, after all. The less a villager was inclined to think, the better. He'd always assumed soldiers to be more sentient than villagers. But now that he lived in the barracks, the cadet prince was forced to face facts. The only truly sentient beings lived in the palace. Finer blood meant finer thoughts, that was all. The rest of the world was filled with meat puppets. Oh, how Derwin hated everything about the outpost. The dull solidarity behind every thought and laugh. The endless military drills, which managed to be both dull and terrifying. Even as his body became strong like the others, Derwin's mind remained stubbornly his own. Now, with the other cadets gone to the five corners, the barracks was quiet for once. Finally, Derwin felt he could breathe. He lay there memorizing the ceiling. Becoming king was an abstraction, of course. Derwin couldn't imagine the path from here to there, his rightful place atop the throne. He simply knew it would be true someday. He'd always felt special. The hand of the goddess coloring everything he did. This was why his mind was separate from theirs, of course, and why the others were so respectful, always allowing him first selection of food, weapons, lizard. He lay in silence, imagining how he would remake the palace, with his own quarters carefully carved separate from the rest of them. He would only ever allow his trusted oligarch to make the betweens and perform every interaction for him, so Derwin could lie abed and dream in comfort, and never have to see any of these dull minds again. Yes, that was just how it would be. Chapter 79 The Cloud Abbey I had the strangest dream last night, Orayaku said. I was a child again, dancing around my parents' caravan. All my aunts and uncles were there. I was young. All of us were well, and that summer we camped along the Y. I tell you, I can still remember every blade of grass, every bird's nest, every kiss. Best summer of my life. But last night I dreamt I was alone in the dark. After night fire, and all the wagons were different. I was lost. I didn't recognize anything around me. I turned back and tried to find my way home, but not only were all the wagons changed, the people were too. They were like the people I knew, but different. Not just a different tribe. They were a different tribe from some other time. They'd never carried water. They just moved on down the river. And I realized I'd gotten lost in time. The worst part was some other Arayaku had traded places with me forever. And then I woke up. Uma listened to him silently. Probably means something, but I'll think about that tomorrow, Arayaku said. What about you? Are you sleeping well here? I like sleeping up in the trees, Uma said, her face carefully blank. Arayaku nodded, looking away quickly. Oh, okay, well, good night. Good night, sweet friend. Uma leaned over and kissed his cheek. But Arayaku lay still. In the morning when Graham woke Uma to leave, it was still dark. Uma felt Arayaku's accusatory silence as she moved quietly away from him. She felt sure. Arayaku knew she was awake. Knew she was leaving him behind. You're quiet this morning, Graham said to Uma as they entered the woods. And that is well, but if you don't mind my saying, it is a different quiet. I think I should have brought my friend Arayaku with us, Uma said. The artist monk lifted up a thorned branch for Uma to pass beneath. She knelt swiftly feeling her cloak drop damp against her calves. Did Arayaku receive your vision as well? Graham said, gently. Uma shook her head. No. He dreamt of something else. The forest was thick. So deeply green, Uma felt dizzy whenever she looked up at the great well of sky above the canopy of trees. They sipped dew from leaves as they climbed and came to an ice-cold creek bed following it towards massive black slabs of rock in the distance. And the chanting of the water began to braid with the chanting of monks. 
The cave was so cavernous that trees grew inside it, and small lizards leapt from the wet branches onto the walls of the cave as Uma and Graham came inside it. Dozens of monks Uma had never seen before all sat cross-legged, chanting prayers towards a pale light glowing out towards them from the black penetralia of the cave. Graham bowed his head, tucking his hands into his robe and turned, indicating Uma was to follow him carefully along a narrow ridge further into the cave. They passed many candlelit formations, each with many altar splendors laid before them. And all the time, as they walked and the pathway twisted, the sunlight from the far distance of the cave waxed and waned like the moon. The ceiling lifted, more light shone in, and Uma heard the crashing of the sea. They came to a wall. Graham bowed deeply. I can go no further, but I will wait for you here, he said, for as long as you need. Chapter 80 Uma Uma climbed slowly, her heart in her mouth. The wall was sheer and as smooth as clay, loosening beneath her fingers and toes, and as she pulled herself up, she kept herself as close to the vertical surface as she could, her scalp itching with sweat. Her thoughts raced. Don't look down. Don't look down. Her mouth was metallic with fear and the sharp minerality of the cave air. Whenever a foothold slid away into thin air, Uma jolted up the sheer face of the wall, propelled by sheer panic. As she neared the top, the ledge above her opened out into a clear, stainless sky, so pale that it seemed textural, and she felt the crashing of unseen waves far below, the distant thuds running up through her arms and legs like thunder. And as she climbed, the air changed. It seemed to breathe, to study her. Uma felt its awareness prickle around her like a web. She locked her mind against it. To show any fear now could mean death. She pulled herself up over the top of the wall and straightened. Her cloak was wet and heavy with mud, but she slid her shoulder blades down her back and lifted her chin proudly. Now she could see the sea was brilliant in the sun, its wave caps crackling like light from another world. I am Uma. The cave walls glittered with salt. You called me and now I am here. Silence. Her palms swam with sweat and grit from her climb. Then words came into Uma's mind, in a voice not her own. Something else, using her own mind to think its own thoughts. How lovely to see you. His voice purred through her, water cool. I thank you for the pleasure this pleasure. Show yourself, Uma said, frightened, and determined not to show it. But nothing was there. Panic spiked through her. She tried to press it away, but it became doubt, twisting in her like cold, spreading ink. You're just a child. Who do you think you are? Because Uma knew now, with utter certainty, that the smoke was a god, but not one from her own world. How would you have me seem to be? A diaphanous dust began to gather, shape-shifting teasingly into the outline of one form after another. It made itself a monk, a mountain, a woman with white hair. Be what you are, Uma said. For you, then, I will be a serpent. The smoke shifted, becoming an enormous form that was both sitting and coiled at once. A vast, green and white serpent wearing the sky robes of a monk. His head was a serpent's head, flat and triangular, but with the arms and shoulders of a man. He was absolutely still. The hem of his robes trailed over the side of the ledge, a mesmeric dance of blues. There were many shades all at once, the incomprehensible depths of universes colliding, of music and birthways, of singfly swarms and madness, just as wild plants have the strongest medicine, so too do the wildest gods. More than anything, what Uma saw before her was strength, an ally more powerful than anything she had ever encountered. Her fear was gone, and what took its place was hunger, for knowledge and power, for the power this god-creature possessed. 
The shaman ghost Yale's words came back to her. What you seek is also seeking you. Ogadai was wrong. Land wasn't power. Mastery and control. That was power. Uma smiled. Greetings. The smoke dipped his head regally, his scaled lips curving into a smile. His slit pupils fixed her in their centers, and Uma saw herself in them. Twin girls in twin doorways, each paused above an untold precipice. The proximity of a god is intoxicating. It causes greatness, insanity, or both, and time in such a space has no meaning. Uma felt peculiar, as if they'd been silent for an unfathomably long time. And indeed, the fabric of her very being was changing, reweaving with every heartbeat she took beside him. If someone were walking below us now, Uma said, if they looked up, could they see you as I see you? Perhaps, the smoke said. His voice was a cunning, narcotic hiss. The air vibrated with his strange, soundless laughter. If I wanted them to, why not? And you called Uma, she who drinks the blood of animals and pretends not to be what she is. How would you have me see you? Uma paused and then scoffed. I'm guessing the monks don't visit you very often. The snake god preened. Of course not. They're too busy praying to learn anything. They haven't learned anything in centuries. They're terrified of knowledge. They want their world to stay just as they think it is. If they keep their eyes shut tight enough, they can pretend this is true. But what isn't changing is dying, Uma. The air vibrated again with his peculiar, sliding laughter. I have waited for this moment a long time. Uma faltered. How did you know about my way, the blood? You needed to recognize yourself for me to recognize you. The body extends beyond the skin, the god said to Uma. The aura of a vampire on the blood road precedes her. But you are weak, Uma. You could be stronger if you let yourself be what you are. If you integrate yourself. You hate the Yang. But more than that, you fear your own strength. Uma shook her head. The Yang are a scourge on the world. You could be limitless, he said. And perhaps all life is a scourge. Uma became very still. I don't understand, she said. You avoid other healers, he said, as if she'd not spoken. You don't want them to see your hatred. You don't want to hurt them with it. That's what you tell yourself, but really, you simply don't want them to know your hatred exists. Why? Can't you already tell everything about me? She said. Permit me the pleasure of your conversation, Uma. Uma felt as if words were being pulled out from her, like splinters from her heart. My hate is the strongest part of me. I need it to kill the Yang. When they're gone from the world, then I can rest. Until then, it must be my secret. Because my hate makes me strong. Uma stared at him, her eyes brilliant fires in the darkness. What we deny develops its own vortex, the snake god said. Its own agenda, do you understand? Then we splinter, we lose power over our will. The right hand knows not what the left is doing. When the yang end, my hate will die and I will rest, Uma said again, wondering if Graham could hear her below. If this was a test, the snake god studied Uma. Do you recognize me, Uma? She shook her head. I don't. Shame had made her smaller, life-sized again, and Uma felt distracted and confused. What is your name? I have many names. You will call me Laxus. Do not say my name except when you are ready to call on me. Do not tell my name to any others. It is how you will call me, and you alone. Tell me you understand this. I understand, Uma said. 
Good. A name is a door. And not every door is for everyone. There is a world not so far from this one, Uma. Peopled with sufferers. Fools. And those who would call themselves Bahitsavas. The Bahitsavas have reached the understandings I will give you. But they choose to remain fools. They choose to stay on in the world rather than joining the mystery. They do this to help sufferers find their way to understanding. They devote all their strength and power to this, rather than strengthening the mystery. But this is misguided, Uma. Do you understand? They withhold their strength and beauty. Rather than grow forward, they are stuck. They waste their knowledge. Meanwhile, their world suffers. Its center cannot hold, and its makers suffer. The makers who wait for the return of their children are growing weary. They wish their seed to be whole again, so it might return into them. When the seed refuses to return, what would be strength becomes illness. You see, it is within the Bahitsava's capacity to force the sufferers to understand, and yet they withhold this teaching. They want the sufferers to find their own way into knowledge. What do you think about this? Uma shifted uncomfortably. Even if they're suffering, each person has to decide they're ready to grow, to make changes. Otherwise, they're not strong enough and no lasting changes can be made. But would you not help a dying man find water? The snake god said. Of what sense is it for him to have to prove himself to you? that he is worthy of having the water. What if others could simply see what you see, Uma? If they could know what you already know? All beings have a right to understand our oneness. Once everyone knows, energy can reunite. We can rest again, together, as we once were. The light began to slant peculiar, as if the sunlight and crashing waves were no longer what she believed them to be. Uma sat up unsteadily. Smooth bits of rock came away beneath her palms. Do the monks agree with you? She said. The monks are fools. Laxus's voice was low and metallic. She felt it in her own throat. They are too terrified to even speak with me, so they have no idea what I think. If the Yang were all given the understanding, Uma, think about it. No, we cannot force people to understand. People come for understandings only if they are ready. His scaled lips parted in a wet, teasing smile. And who are you to disagree with me? Uma's words were out before she realized she was saying them. I am a god in my own right. And Laxus smiled. He bowed to her with a little flourish. And so, Uma... Laxus, the falconer of souls, the predator whose trap is not disguised amidst the answer, but bears itself boldly as though it were itself the answer. For the false dream is a predator, worse than any other, a spider the web spins for itself, a poison lotus, a trap, devouring all seekers until they are him and he is them. Laxus knows time forwards and backwards. He knows, surely, that I'm telling you this tale. His favorite game is to use my likeness to lead my beloveds to him. But it is you, my listener, who must find the thread. I say it to you again, that we are moon time and the roaming dark, catlings as scrim the singing sand. Night fire and dreaming soil and sea. Devouring, devoured, and oh, these tangled silks. And somewhere, the thread, which knotted differently, changes everything. Chapter 81 Uma Go now, Laxis said. Come back when you are rested, for there is much that I will teach you. You can decide what to do with the knowledge. Then he was gone. The air was hollow. 
The cave was dark. Uma was exhausted. Her cloak was stiff with dried mud as she sat back on her heels and began tearing it to shreds, braiding the shreds together into a rope. She tied it around a boulder and pulled it tight, until she was certain it would hold, and down she went. No, she'd said to Laxus, and yet she was tempted by the snake god's ideas, felt the strength in them. What he said was right, and yet it was wrong. Uma held both truths in her mind as she landed softly. She walked forwards in the dark, feeling a new power halo round her. I am a god in my own right, she'd said to him. That was right, and yet it was wrong. Graham had made a small camp where he was waiting for her, sitting in meditation on a blanket. He insisted she drink tea and rest before they journeyed back to the abbey, and when they emerged from the cave, Uma was amazed to find it was morning, and that her smoke-scarred chest had not felt tight once since meeting the snake god Laxus. Chapter 82 Nor Come on, Nor, you always miss everything, Cadet Pow, Nor's best friend in the barracks, said, throwing open the door and bursting into his room. What's this, you're doing more exercises? Nor covered his workbook with his hand. I promise you, the tavern girls will still be there next Candlemark, Pow, and they'll be there tomorrow, and the day after that. Pow rolled her eyes. Let me see what you're drawing, at least. Nor pushed back his chair and stretched, grinning up at her. Well, think they're any good? Pow seized his papers and took them to the center of the room, where she read them, motionless, shaking her head with admiration. A battering ram that's also a siege tower? With cover underneath for archers? This is crazy, but it would work. It would definitely. But is this really how you want to spend your harvest leave? She said. Nor hesitated. Pow smacked Nor's drawing face down onto his desk triumphantly. All right then, time to go. Come on, cadet. He laughed. You win, you win. They ran down the empty hall and out into the lamplit streets of Palmstone, blending into Harvest's crowd of revelers, cadets, and dancers. Then, it was the next morning, Nor waking up somewhere in the desert far outside the city, asleep within a tumble of other cadets, including Pow. He blinked up at the sky, memories of the night before hazing back to him. He seemed to remember a wild, drunken plan to stage a capture of Tinturn's outpost and seize Derwin Lampesis, Nor's final rival to the throne. But surely that was a dream. He looked over at Pau, who lay next to him, whose grin became a smirk as she nudged him, and Nor knew it wasn't a dream. Do you think it will work? She said. It's wrong enough to be right. Nor said, laughing. Like you. Pow sighed happily. Good enough for me. By dawn of the next day, the cadets had seized Derwin's barracks in Tintern, and the younger Lampesa's boy was readily given over with hardly a fight. Derwin came staggering out of the barracks, his hands tied behind his back by the other Tintern cadets. Nor smiled, remembering Bestel. He could see dead Bestel's features on Derwin, even though this Lampisa's boy was cowering with fear much sooner than Bestel had. Kneel, Nor said to him. Derwin shook so violently he almost lost his balance, but he knelt. Nor touched the back of Derwin's dirty neck with two fingers. He felt the smaller boy's pulse, fast as a tiny bird caught by his touch. The attention of all the other cadets swelled into him with a dizzying pleasure. When I am king, Nor said, I will integrate all the tribes, one tribe under Goddix. We Yang are all one people. Derwin, you may rise. Nor's friends laughed uneasily. They'd captured Derwin without knowing exactly what they wanted to have happen next. Derwin looked up at Nor. You're letting me go? His voice cracked. Nor shrugged. Why not? You're no threat to me. Derwin sagged as if shot. He didn't know what he wanted to have happen next either, but he knew this was worse. Far, far worse. All the other cadets around them jeered as Derwin staggered onto his feet. To his shame, his pants were wet. Nor sneered. You're no threat to me. Or to anyone at all. And even if you were, 
I would never hide from you. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. He turned and walked away. Go on then, coward, Pow said to Derwin. She threw a rock at his feet. Go on back to those who betrayed you and remember you this day. Derwin stood shakily, watching them go. He picked up the rock and held it. Nor's cadets kept looking back, jeering, to see if Derwin dared throw it. If he did, surely Nor would give the word for them to kill the shamed prince, and they wanted to kill him, so badly they could taste it, like salt in their mouths. But Derwin only stood silent and still, becoming smaller and smaller in the distance. Chapter 83 Uma Back at the Abbey's night fire, Uma's friends wanted to know what she'd seen in the cave. I was given understandings. Words have power. They're doors, Uma said, carefully. And not every door is for everyone. Talu smiled and shook his head, knowing she would say no more. And so... He began to sing. Oh, whiskers are the catling's bow and arrow, and you are my very marrow, the heart of my heart, root of my root, my beloved. I think of you and dream of you. Oh, stillness with the fullness is. Tolu leapt up dramatically, opening his arms wide as he turned pausing around the fire until he held all their eyes. My love, dance with me, Uma. Smiling, Uma shook her head, but she took Tolu's hand and stood, her eyes shining with the firelight and the words she would never say. They danced, the others joining them, and for a moment around the night fire, atop the monk's mountain, a glittering golden moon skipped between her stars. This is Paula Schmidt, and thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show and you'd like to hear a little extra bonus story, please visit eveningskingdom.com and click subscribe. Not only will you receive a quick little automated email when each new episode is up, I have some free Halloween vibes content coming up soon, exclusively for email subscribers only. I have some plans for it, so I can't post it on the podcast, but I can send it out automatically to everyone on my email list. So subscribe via Evening's Kingdom and hold onto your hats. When the Never Sees is ready, it will magically appear in your email inbox. Thank you so much for listening. This is Paula Schmidt. Please leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and stay tuned. The rest of the story is just down the road.